parallels in the last day. I see the dark getting darker, but I also see the light getting lighter. I believe that we're in a time of great blessing and, and supernatural activity from God's side of the issue. On the other hand, is Satan acting up? Of course he is. But guess what? Light overcomes darkness. Light overcomes darkness. In fact, the book of Isaiah talks about that. And uh, the, uh, I think it's chapter 60, first couple of verses of Isaiah. talks about gross darkness covering the people. Then he goes ahead to say, but his light will arise upon you. And I believe, again, that was prophetic as well. So why do I believe it? I believe it because what I see the Bible say. All right? What I see Scripture say. Now, let's pick up where we were last week. The last part of the teaching session. Oh, and by the way, if you happen to have missed either session one or two, they are available for free on the church website. Just go to the church website, open it up to the very over to the right head side of the header up there. It'll say sermons. Click on that. That'll drop down, and you'll see two down there that are talking about Wednesday night classes. Click on each one or one of those, and you can sit there and listen to it for free. Or if you do want to buy it, you can purchase the CD. But I want to kind of bring us up to speed from where we were last week. We were talking about. Uh, there were four classifications of demons. Principalities, rulers of darkness, wicked spirits, and, and, and uh, uh, foes in high places. Four different classifications. So it's good to know that and remember that because of what we're about to say. Then we also talked about there were three areas or levels of doing spiritual warfare. We said ground level, witchcraft level, and then strategic level. Someone asked me, well, where are those terms in the Bible in Jesus' ministry? He didn't use those terms. Those are terms that people have put on simply so that we can know what we're talking about. There are demons that most of us deal with when we deal with them. They are the, basically the lower level of it, the lower level. Now, when Jesus dealt with Satan personally in the garden, He's the head honcho. He is, that was Satan himself. That wasn't a principality of power. That was Satan himself. Most of us, if any, ever deal with Satan himself. We deal with his minions. Principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, or wicked spirits. So, uh, uh, the, the lower level. So, but witchcraft spirits are in kind of the mid-level. And then the strategic level is when you get up to the principalities and the powers, which are what we're going to talk about tonight in chapter 4 in your book. On territorial spirits. Dealing with territorial spirits. Now, let me get to my book page here, which is chapter 4. And by the way, I'm using Mavis's microphone tonight, I mean, uh, stand tonight, teaching stand. So if I break out in song, you'll know it's horror known and come on up. <laughs> That's not apt to happen, believe me. You don't have to be concerned about that. But at any rate, we're talking about territorial spirits. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and verse 13, there was an area, a city called Pergamos. And this is what the apostle John 
said about that church when he wrote to it. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast uh, to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Two mentions there, Satan's throne and where Satan dwells. Now, was he actually saying that Satan in himself actually lived in Pergamos? Personally, I doubt that. Because knowing uh, that Satan can only be in one place at one time. See, a lot of times, if, as I've mentioned in the first session, we assume that Satan has divine abilities. He does not. God can be in every place at one time, at the same time. Satan cannot. He can only be in one place at a time. If Satan personally is in Louisville, Kentucky, he's nowhere else on the planet. All right? So when it's said that his throne was there or his, uh, uh, he dwelt there, I believe it's talking about he had spirits doing his work. So sometimes we say things like this. And you probably, and I know I have said it this way. I'm under attack by the devil. You ever been under the attack of the devil? He's come against you harshly. I really doubt it was Satan himself, but Satan was carrying it out through one of his minions. A principality, a power, a ruler of darkness, a wicked spirit. Something like that. In that form were you being attacked by Satan. I believe that's what was happening here. Now, another thing about principalities and powers, in the Old Testament, you'll see over and over again the term high places. The high places were usually in a high area of the city or a hill or a mountaintop. Usually, not always, but usually it was. And because the people in that time believed, and this idea has penetrated uh, lots of people throughout the earth today, that the higher you get up, the greater authority you have. I'm talking about simply in location. You know, I don't know what uh, the the elevation here in Louisville is, so many feet above sea levels, five, six hundred, something like that maybe. Is that right, Butch? Five hundred? You know, whereas some places, the elevation, you know, I like to do some intercession or a rebuke devil, so I want to get up on higher ground. Personally, I don't think that has any real significance. I think you have as much authority... 500 feet above sea level as you do 90,000 feet above sea level because your authority doesn't come from how high you are off the ground. It comes from Jesus Christ who gave you his authority. All right, you see the point there. But they believed if they could get on a high place, they could erect their statue and that gave them greater authority and they would invite the demons to come inhabit that statue. And that's why God forbade them from building high places because it was satanic in nature. That is, demons were working through it. But in the book of Numbers 33, 52, this is what he told them. When you get into the land, this is what you're to do. Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images, and demolish all of their high places. Because what did he know? He knew, God knew, talking to Moses, he knew 
that that would be a stumbling block and would cause them to be led astray. And they next, that they were worshiping the devil. They were worshiping demons. And so he said, you, when you go into land, you clean all that stuff out. What does that say to me? It says to me, we need to get all that junk removed out of our life. We need to get all that junk out of our life. All the strongholds and all the open doors that have been made possible for people to be led astray. They were more than just images. It was satanic power that was there. Another term you'll see in the Old Testament a lot is Baal. Who was Baal? He was a false god that they worshipped. He was one of those, again, that caused a great deal of consternation to the Israelites because they didn't obey God fully. They would turn from God's ways, turn to Baal or one of these other gods who were nothing more than demon spirits of principality or a power. And as a result of that, they would be worshiping him, literally be worshiping him. So that's why God was so harsh and hard at times with the Israelites. They were disobeying God fully, purposefully on many occasions, and they were worshiping the wrong gods. In the book of 2 Kings 17, 9 to 12, you'll find that in your book on page 33. The children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their cities, from, from uh, watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars, wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. There they burned incense in all the high places like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger for they serve idols of which the Lord had said, you shall not do this. All right? They just purposefully disobeyed God and were serving idols which were nothing more than demonic spirits. All right? In the book of 1 Kings, chapter 11, verses 1 through 8, even the wisest man on earth, Solomon, in his day there was nobody like Solomon as far as wisdom. People came from far and wide to hear wisdom from his mouth. The wisest man of his time, perhaps of all time, had a problem with idols. Scripture says, While Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. But what did Solomon do? In his old age, he made alliances with those people groups and those nations. He made alliances. Now, he was doing it with one thought was, well, we make these alliances, that means we have peace with them, and we can get along better, and we can trade with them, and we have financial benefit. But God said, don't do it, because instead of you winning them to your side, they will turn you to their side. And because he... He had like 700 wives and 300 concubines. I don't know about you guys, but I have plenty of trouble with one. 
He had a thousand. But they weren't, they were, they were called his wives and concubines, but uh, he only lived with just a few of them at a time. And uh, the scripture says, he, he uh, built worship idols for Ashtoreth, for Milcom, for Chemosh, and for Moloch. That was the four major idols that were demon inhabiting those idols. They were territorial spirits. A territorial spirit is simply that. It's a demon spirit that controls a particular area. A particular area. In the book of Revelation, you'll see the harlot is mentioned in Revelation 17. In Revelation 13, you see the beast. You see the beast. And that were uh, people and, and spirits that were being controlled to in turn control other people. And that's what they are going to attempt to do in the last days. And folks, when you and I come against uh, demons to do spiritual battle, you cannot use natural tools. All right? Uh, intellect will not cast out devils. Sophisticated technology will not cast out devils. It takes spiritual authority and spiritual power. All right? If we're going to bring deliverance to people that need it, we're going to have to use the tools that work for that particular thing. All right? And that is God's power and God's authority. Thank God for technology. I love a lot of it. Thank God for human understanding and, and brilliance that people possess. But that won't cast out demons. It won't. You've got you to gotta have what it takes to cast it out. And that is the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. And guess what? He's already given both things to us. He's already given both things to us. The anointing of the Holy Spirit and the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. You go, therefore, and make disciples of the, all the people groups, teaching them what I've commanded you, baptizing them in water, and I will be with you all the way to the consummation of the ages. See, he said all authority is given to me. Now, by the giving the great commission to them, as well as in Luke 9 and 10, he transferred that to us. What about the power? That came at Pentecost. That's why we encourage every believer to have their own personal Pentecost, to have the anointing of the Spirit that will enable you to do the work of God that God causes, calls you to do. Now, how do we deal with territorial spirits? Well, here in the Bible, reading the book of Nehemiah, Israel was in a sad shape when Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. But he began to pray and seek God in, in Nehemiah 1, 4 through 11. And as he did, he confessed and repented of the sins of his people. Just like Daniel did in the book of Daniel. You may recall in Daniel chapter 9, verses 16 to 19, he started off confessing our sin. 
Now it appears by reading that that Daniel was a straight person. He wasn't dilly-dallying around. He was committed to the Lord. But in an intercessory way, he identified with his own people and he confessed their sins to God as if he himself was a participant in it. And that has, that has confused lots of people. But a lot of times when people do intercessory prayer, they assume the position of the person they're praying about or the people group they're praying for. That's what Daniel was doing. And so, what am I saying? I'm saying that you want to overcome a powerful spirit, a territorial spirit, you need people praying and really getting right with God. Really coming clean with God, getting themselves clean before God. You say, well, I thought they're forgiven. They are. But sometimes, as we'll talk about in a minute, you still have some strongholds in your life that need to be worked on. Even though all your sin per se is forgiven, you may have an open door somewhere that you're not even aware of. And I believe when we get ready to pray in a little bit, several of you are going to find that out for yourself. You may think, well, I don't have any open doors in my life. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Because I've seen lots and lots of people. Again, I refer you to Derek Prince, and I believe it was last time or time before last that I mentioned. Great man of God. I, I really enjoyed his teaching for many, many years. And he had a problem, and a young boy came up to him and started praying for him in his problem and essentially cast the demon out of him. And he said, I would have sworn that I didn't have any spirits attacking my body until that young man cast that thing out. And when he cast it off of him, he said, I recognized it immediately, what it was. Yeah, great man of God. Great man of God. All right? And that story has been repeated hundreds of times. Look in the book of James, chapter 4, on page 37. Here's what James said to do. This is New Testament. Submit to God. Stand against or resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. So what can we do? I'm talking about as a group of people, as a local congregation, as Christians in this city, in this state, around the nation around the world, whatever large group you know about, if we come together, you know, there's power in unity. Scripture says, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes actually, says a three-fold cord is not easily broken. And in other words, where there's unity, where there's unity, there is greater release of supernatural power. Where two or three are gathered together in my name. What did he say? I will be manifest in your midst. What are we saying? That if you're dealing with the stronger demons, they've been defeated by what Jesus did on the cross. Absolutely. But if you're having to do an encounter with them, you need to have people praying and standing with you. Believe me, you'll run up on something that you'll be glad you had that going for you. Because even these ground level ones can put up a fight if you don't know what you're doing and you don't have the supernatural anointing to deal with it. And you can... Now, not all, not all those demon-possessed or demonized people that you deal with 
It doesn't have to be a two-hour, three-hour, five-hour, or 19 sessions to get them out. You don't have to go through that. Uh, in the early days when we were learning about this, a lot of times we had lots of long sessions. But as we have learned more about how to yield to the Holy Spirit and recognize the enemy, we find that the sessions get shorter and less frequent, frequent with the same people. Maybe one session, maybe two, and usually it's not as nearly as dramatic as it was in the early days. Somebody had said not recently to me, said, well, I'd like to see one of those deliverance sessions. So next time you get into one, will you call me? And I said, uh, okay, as long as you won't get afraid and, and run out the door. Sure, sure, I, I need some help every once in a while. So yeah, if you, if you really want to do that, let me know. I'll call you at three in the morning or something. <laughs> and, uh, and we'll see how spiritually anointed you are at that time. <laughs> oh my. Lies about Satan's presence. Know this. He wants us to believe that he doesn't exist. That's the first lie. That's the biggie. All the rest of them are based on that in one form or the other. He wants us to believe he doesn't exist. Now, why would he want that? Well, if you don't believe he exists, you're not apt to do anything about him. You know, if you don't think there is such a thing as a demon or a devil or Satan, then you're going to put the blame on something else. And are you aware that most Christian churches, listen to me carefully, do not believe in a personal devil? They, they believe that it's a symbol or a word that refers to all that's wrong in the world. I'm talking about a personal being called Satan or the devil. Most churches in this country do not believe that. If you go down to the two major seminar, seminaries in this city and talk about you believe there's an actual being called Satan and, de and the devil and Lucifer and you believe that he's active today influencing people's lives through his demons that follow him and they will laugh in your face. Because the vast majority do not believe in a personal devil. A being, an actual being. They believe in the idea, but he's not an actual being. What we're talking about, there's an actual being out there. There's an actual being there. And he has a whole bunch of emissaries that work under him, carrying out his will all over the planet and in the atmosphere. So we need to know that we have the authority to deal with him. So he wants you to think he didn't exist. He wants you to think, secondly, that he's more powerful than he actually is. Well, that's going to be a big revelation to us in eternity. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, talk about when they, uh, they were talking about this being, this king of Persia, which was a, was a euphemism for Satan himself that when people see him later, they're going to look down and see that shriveled up creature and said, is that the one? Is that the one that caused me all of this distress? They're going to be surprised. He, but what does he do? Well, scripture. He walks about 
as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Let me tell you something about a roaring lion. Generally speaking, a lion that does nothing but roar is an old lion that doesn't have many teeth left. That's the reason he's roaring is because he's trying to put fear on his prey and get the prey to run and do the things he wants it to do so he, in fact, can catch it and destroy it and eat it. All right? That's what a roaring lion does. He sounds ferocious. And when Satan causes one of his demons to whisper in your or my ear, you know what? It, it's fear. He's trying to put fear in you. Oh, you better watch out. You better not try that. Oh, you're going to get yourself in a terrible shape. And oh, 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 what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Oh, I'm having a nervous breakdown. What am I going to do? Just one idea that creates fear sidetracks you from obeying God. Hear me. Write that down. Remember that. One accusation, one roaring voice that creates fear will sidetrack you from obeying God. How do I know that? I know it from Scripture in second. I know it from experience. That's how I know it. But you don't have to stay there. You can get up. I'll tell you an illustration. I've told this at church before. Some of you heard it, perhaps some haven't. So if you've heard it, don't give my punchline until after I get through telling it. We were starting this church down at Kentucky Lake in 1970 out of a tent revival. Um, actually, you know, it was 69, 69. Debbie and I had just been married about two months and we moved down there to be the pastor of this church plant. On a sat- one Saturday, they had in the fall in Benton, they have Tater Day. All right? Tater Day simply means in that little town of about 5,000, it means people from all the county and some of the counties around about it come into Benton and they set up booths, crafts fair type stuff, and they have the world's largest fish fry. You know, they have. I mean, a lot of stuff going on like this stuff. All right. I had to go to the bank, and I forgot it was Tater Day. If I had remembered that, I would not have gone on a Saturday. I would not. Because I had been down there on a Saturday when it was Tater Day, and I knew better than to do that. But since it didn't mean anything to me, I forgot that it was Tater Day. So I had to go to the bank for some reason, and I had to park my car about a mile away from where the bank was because of all these people. You know, it's a little town set up for 5,000, and you got 30,000, 40,000 people there. You got a problem. And so I had to park about a mile away, and I'm walking up there. Just a short distance before I get to the bank I'm going to, I see this guy sitting on the side of the sidewalk, up his back against the wall of the store building, under some sort of a little stool or chair, and he had a box out in front of him, and I knew what that meant because as I got closer, I saw his white cane. So I knew what he was wanting was he was wanting money because he was blind. And uh, so I walk up there and I felt like the Lord said to me, you lay hands on him and I'll heal him. What? You lay hands on him and I'll heal him today. 
And the closer I got, the bigger the battle got on the inside of me. What if he didn't? Well, this is going to be foolish. And not only that, I was reminded, listen to me, I was reminded that we were starting this brand new church and we don't need any bad publicity. I mean, it's hard enough to start a charismatic work in the midst of a bunch of Baptists and Church of Christ people. I mean, you know, the whole county was Baptist or Church of Christ, one or the other, and they thought we were crazy to start with. We don't need any more bad publicity. And I thought, if I pray for him and he doesn't get healed, that's going to that's go all over this whole area, and they're going to think, I don't, they already think we're crazy. Now they're going to know it. If, you don't, if I say God's healed him and he hasn't. So I'm battling that every step. When I got to him, I reached in my pocket, put some money in his box, and kept going. Went into the bank, did my business, came out, walked back to that car like a whip puppy. I knew I had dis- I knew that was God, and I knew I had purposefully disobeyed Him. And it took me that day and biggest part of another day to get free of that. I not only rep- I repented right away, but you know when, when you you have to forgive yourself sometimes. God's quick to forgive, but sometimes we're not quick to forgive ourselves for our goof-ups. What I'm saying is, one, one act of fear can sidetrack you from obeying God. I made a decree right there, an agreement with myself, that will never happen again. I don't care where I am. I don't care if we're starting a church or I'm, I'm working at a secular job. If God, if you speak to me that clearly and you say go cast blindness off of somebody, I'm tackling him. I'm going to do it. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I am doing it. Roll forward a few years. Pastoring this little church in Rockport, Kentucky. Correction. Paris, Tennessee. I've got my churches out of alignment. Paris, Tennessee. And uh, we had a lady in the church. Uh, her husband was legally blind. And she was born blind. Never saw anything. Not even light in her life. And she was about 35 years old. We had prayed for her at church several times. No, no uh, much of an improvement at least. Uh, she got to where she could see just a little bit of light out of one of the eyes. But uh, that was all. No, no uh, complete healing. So one day I'm in my office praying and the Lord said to me, and man, I mean I knew it was God. It wasn't my imagination. It wasn't a feeling. I could hear it as if God was speaking authoritatively. He said, I want you to go to Rinda. That was her name. I want you to go to Rinda's house. I want you to tell her that I said that God has come to heal your eyes today. If you will receive it, God will heal you. Tell her that. I mean, I was shaking in my boots. Bless God, I'm going to obey God. It's not my business to heal her. It's my business to obey. You know, there's a big difference between those two things. See, if I think I'm the one have to heal her, well, forget that. I know I can't do that. But it's not my business to heal her. It's my business to obey. And if God said it, he'll do what he said. So I go to her house, and I knock on the door. And as always, I've been there before, Debbie and I have, and I, we would call out and tell her who we are. I'd said, Rinda, it's Pastor Carol. Okay, and so she comes and unlocks the door and lets me come in. And I stood on the, her steps of her door, and I said, Rinda, no, I don't, 
don't need to come in, but I just need to tell you what the Lord said this morning. He told me to come to your house and I tell you that He would heal you today. Can I lay hands on you? She didn't take a minute to think. She didn't have to think about it. Her answer immediately was no. No. Brenda, why not? I mean, I'm, my hands are shaking just about this violently. And I couldn't help it. It was the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I mean, if God wants to shake my hand, that's fine. But I'm not going to do it if he don't. But I, could, I couldn't help it. I, was, I felt like I'd been plugged into a 220. And uh, she said, no. I said, why not? She said, I would lose my SSI payment every month. Supplemental Security Income. I said, well, Brenda, if God heals your eyes, you can get a job and get, make more money than that SSI payment. Because I knew what it was, a couple hundred dollars. She said, no. No, I don't, I don't want that. I mean, I stood there for at least five to ten minutes trying to convince her to let me lay hands on her. She wouldn't do it. I said, Okay. I left. The difference between that one in, in, at Tater Day and this one, I went home rejoicing. Not because she didn't get healed, but because I obeyed. Because I obeyed. Now, did she ever get healed? No. She died a few years ago. Since we've been in Louisville, both she and her husband both passed away. And uh, I didn't go to the funeral, but I heard from some that did saying she was Completely still blind when she passed away. Unnecessarily. She could have been healed that one day completely, according to what God said to me. My point is this. Fear can stop or destroy what God told you to do. And guess who's behind the fear? It's Satan and his kingdom that's out to promote it. So he wants us to believe that he's more powerful than he really is. He wants us to have a good opinion of him. Dear Lord, I have an opinion of the devil and all of his work, and it's not good. It's not good. He wants to be worshipped. That's on page 39. He wants us to worship him. But we don't need to worship him. We need to worship God. Remember what God says in the Ten Commandments? Worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In, that, in those passages that relate to that. To worship the Lord only. That's the reason he was upset with the, the high places and the groves and the bell and all the other false gods because they wanted worship. And that's what Satan still wants. His kingdom still wants out of us. He's after our worship. He's after our worship. He really is. And we should not be worshiping anything that's associated with him. Now, breaking strongholds. What is a stronghold? It's where the devil and his forces are entrenched. That's what a stronghold is. It's where the devil and his forces are entrenched. They've taken up a residence there. They've taken up a residence. Now, if you're taking notes, this is not in your book, what I'm about to tell you in the next two minutes. But what is, a, what is not a stronghold? Let me tell you what they are not, then I'm going to tell you a little bit more what they are. 
does not mean, if you find a stronghold in your life, it doesn't mean that you're not saved or that you're backslidden. It doesn't mean that. Because guess what? All of us have areas of our life that are not yet submitted 100% to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We call that the flesh. We have, all of us have some flesh. And because there's some flesh, some area of flesh could become an open door that allows a stronghold of some demonic power or belief to hold us down in that area. That's what a stronghold is. doesn't mean you're not saved. It doesn't mean that you're demonized. You could be, but not necessarily all the time. It doesn't mean that to everybody, simply because there's a stronghold there. It just simply means there's an area, probably because of the flesh, wrong beliefs, or having not fully renewed our mind to the Word of God, or some other similar reason that there's an area of our life that a demonic power has caused to be entrenched. It's a strong hold that the enemy's kingdom has in your life. And let me suggest this. One of the main ways that strongholds develop is in the thinking process that we have. Remember the passage, Proverbs 4.23, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. See, as a, man, as a person thinks. Our thinking lots of times causes strongholds because we believe things that we think is, are acceptable but are not. And that develops a stronghold there. It may, a stronghold may be an open door. It could be a generational curse. And I'm going to get to that a little bit more in detail later in another session. But now that we're going to deal with strongholds in a little bit, I just wanted to throw it out there and get you familiar with that. That it has to do with the mind sometimes. It has to do with generational garbage or curse. And it's something that hinders you, holds you back, a work of the flesh. So, look at the passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 to 6, page 40 in your book. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Put that in yellow, underlight it, and get that inside of you. Though we walk in the flesh, yay, that's here, here we are. We do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, fleshly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. All right? Again, I repeat, you cannot do spiritual warfare, spiritual battle with natural tools. You can't do it. You can be the most intelligent person that's ever lived, IQ over 200. You know, you can have all the technology that exists. That will not set you free in this realm because it's operating from another realm. You know what you have to do with demons? Cast them out. Cast them out. You can't crucify demons. 
You have to cast out demons. And you can't cast out the flesh. You have to crucify the flesh. Okay? You crucify the flesh and you cast out demons. We need to keep our theology a little bit better aligned. Because, again, I was, when I was pastoring in Ohio County, one of the ladies of the church, uh, I lived in a, we lived in a mobile home at that time. She comes knocking on the door one day and I go to the door. She said, and she, I could tell by looking at her, something bad is wrong. She said, Pastor, I need for you to cast me out of me. She said, I've discovered I'm my worst problem. Said, it's not my husband, it's not my kids, it's me. I want, to, I want you to cast me out of me. I said, I'm sorry, I don't have that ministry. I can't do that. And then I said to her, just to make a point, I said, well, if I did do that, you know what would happen to you? She said, what? I said, you'd be dead. I'm trying to get her to understand the seriousness of what we were talking about. You know, you, you can't cast you out of you. You can cast something that came from the outside that got on you off of you or out of you, depends on where it's located, but you can't cast you, the person, out of you. If you do, this body will be dead. So what do we do? We war according to the spiritual warfare and we pull down strongholds. The reason that we can do that is because the victory over strongholds as well as Satan and sin is through the cross of Jesus Christ. The authority of the anointing he's given us allows us to pull down strongholds. Casting down arguments. Underline that one. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. There's a lot of arguments, supposed truth, that turns out in light of God's word and his kingdom are not true at all. You know, there's this term that goes around now about the media, and it's called fake news. I'm sure you've heard it. Fake news. The conservatives call the liberals uh, CNN fake news. And the CNN calls Fox News fake news because they're coming from different perspectives. Well, there's some fake news in our world that is fake because it's not aligned with what Scripture says. Anything other than Scripture is incomplete at best. It may be totally false, but at least it's incomplete. The only revelation that is complete is the Word of God. Now, when you wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning, think about that. The only thing that is complete is the revelation of Jesus, His kingdom, in His Word. That's 100%. You can believe that. Everything else is incomplete at best, or it may be false. So casting down every argument and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. If it opposes the revelation of God and His Word, the living Word, Jesus, Holy Spirit, if it opposes any of that, it's not completely true. At best, sometimes there's not even any truth in it. You know, Satan does something like this. He kind of sweetens the deal sometimes to make it deceptive of leaving a, just a tiny bit of truth 
like I mentioned about the bait on a fisherman's hook. And, and whatever truth he gives, it's there as a bait to snare and to catch the person. And then you find out later his purpose was not in God's plan at all. Absolutely was not. Nope. Man came to me, one of my previous pastorates, and he sat down to, in my office, and he said, well, I'll just get right down to why I came to see you, Pastor. And I said, okay. Now, he came to our church, by the way. He wasn't from any other type of church. He was from a part of our church. He said, I'll get right down to it. The Lord told me to marry so-and-so. I said, what? I knew her. She was the sister of another family in our church. She happened to be married and have a couple of kids. And I, I, I said, now back up, back up, man. What did you, now say that to me again. I said, now, and I called her name. So I said, you're talking about, and I gave this lady's name. Yeah. The Lord spoke to me and said, that's my wife. But she married the wrong person and so did I. And now God's going to put us together. I sat there and thought for a little bit. I thought, now I can be nice or I can speak the truth, hopefully in love. But you know, some things are just so stupid and so unbiblical. It's just best to confront it head on. I looked him in the eye and I said, you listen to me. God did not say that to you. He did not do that. He said, I had a dream about it. I was praying and it came back to me again. And I had this warm feeling on the inside. I know it was God. I said, you had heartburn. That's what you had. That was not God. God doesn't do that. Well, why do you know it? I said, because the Word of God says that. Forbid such stuff as that. No, he didn't say that. No, absolutely not. Don't want to hear no more about it? God didn't say it. You need to get on your face before God, buddy, and repent. You know, he didn't much care for that. And he left the church. And he didn't come for a while. One day I saw him later. He came up to me and he said, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. He said, well, you were right. He said, after you got on my case, I, had, I was kind of mad at you for several weeks. I said, don't worry about it. I've had that before. It didn't bother me. And he said, you know, but I really did start seeking God, and I found out that was exactly right what you said. That wasn't God at all. I was deceived. Absolutely. Absolutely. You get my point. There are some things, high things, and that opposes the revelation of God and His Word and His kingdom that simply have to be cast down and dealt with because of the cross and what Jesus has done. Then he said, in bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We come to the thought life now. The thought life. Bringing every thought in obedience to Christ. Thoughts are part of the soul realm. 
which need to be renewed. By the renewing of your mind that you may prove the good, the acceptable, the perfect will of God. Romans 12, 2. Mind renewal. Ephesians 4, 23. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Many other passages talk about the mind. And uh, that's what we need. See, this guy got kind of deceived to, to where a, an untruth, a false thing, he believed it and was wanting to act on it. That's why, I, that's why I had to be so specific and so dogmatic to save him if he would listen, plus get that out of our church. All right? You know, one of the pastor's job is to watch over the sheep. If you see the wolf coming, you don't run from him, you attack him. Him. And I knew that if I didn't deal with him, we would have a deluge of similar thinking. So I just dealt with it strongly for the first one, and we didn't have that anymore. If people in our area believe that, they want somebody else's church. They didn't come to ours. <laughs> Cast it down. Get rid of it. I want to just stop here because I do want us to do some of this. And next time we'll pick up here on page 40, 41 in your book. But I want to talk a little bit about what I've got on page um, 44. If you've if you got a book, turn to page 44, and it says the five R's. The five R's. And I want to talk a little bit about that, and then we're going to do those five things corporately. When I deal with somebody, have for about 40 years now, that looks like needs deliverance, I take them through these five R's, if I can, if the circumstance will allow it. Now, as I mentioned last week, if you're in the midst of a public service or something and a demon attacks you through a person or he comes crawling down the aisle like a snake, you can't say to him, wait a minute, come see me next Tuesday and I'll take you through the five R's. you got to deal with it, all right? But other than cases like that, if I have some say in when I minister the deliverance, I take them through this first. The first is, the first R is recognize that a stronghold exists. How do you do that? Well, you have any areas of your life that you wish could be improved? You have any areas of your life that you tried to use personal discipline against? And you've disciplined yourself and you've made yourself toe the line in this area, but it's not doing any good, it's not improving. There's a possibility you got a stronghold there. Have you got any temperament, physical illnesses that are hereditary? That you, you see it in your parents or your grandparents, or you see it in your siblings. That could be a stronghold. So you need to recognize what a stronghold is and what it might be in your life. Second R, repent of anything that you may have done that has allowed this to happen or to be here. Recognize what it is and then repent. Now, know this, repentance isn't saying, God, forgive me. I know I got your attention, didn't I? No, repentance simply means change direction. 
Now, you may say, God, forgive me, but just saying, God, forgive me, doesn't mean you repented. Hello? Doesn't mean that. If I, re- if I say, God, forgive me, and I really repent, that means I turn. From going that direction, going this direction. That's repentance. You can pray a prayer or you can do the action. So you need to repent. And you know what I've learned, and, and I've had others say this before me who also learned it, was deliverance is really easy when the participant repents first. I should say easier when the person that you're working with will repent. Then when you repent real good, it's amazing how demons decide we better leave. And it makes it a whole lot easier. So recognize what the stronghold is, repent, and then thirdly, renounce. What does that mean? Declare out loud that you do not want this thing. I declare in the name of Jesus, you stronghold of, I don't want this. I don't want it. I've told this before and I'll reiterate it. In my family, I have seven brothers and sisters, four brothers and three sisters, of which then comes, I come along. I'm the youngest, so there's eight of us. My father, my mother, and all of my siblings wear glasses and have all of their adult life. My grandfather, mother, the only one that I remember, also wore glasses. And so I asked some of my older siblings if they remembered the other set of grandparents and even my father and mother's grandparents and my oldest couple of brothers, in fact, remembered when they were small children about those people. And they wore glasses. So when I got into this deliverance thing 50 plus years ago and found out about how genetics could affect and how strongholds could be passed from generation to generation, I came to a great revelation. And that is why I had weak eyes. Because it was passed on from generation to generation. I've been wearing glasses since I was I started Bible school when I was 17. And um, so you know when I got, I finally got, it took me two or three years before I really got it. You know, sometimes we know something up here, but we still don't really have it. Let me say that again. Sometimes we know stuff in our brain, but we really haven't got it to where we can walk it out yet. All right? I knew it up here, theologically, and even I could quote you some scriptures, but I really didn't have it. It took me two or three years to really get it. And when I got it, I started saying this. I rebuke weak eyes. I rebuke failing eyesight. I tell it to get out of my body in Jesus' name. And I, after I read a, a, some things about eyeballs, you know, optic nerves and the various parts of the eyeball, and I, I would quote those things. You know, the optic nerve that runs to right here in the back of your brain. I would say, Lord, there's no problems with that optic nerve. And I would point from here, this eyeball right back here, Lord, right there, 17 to 19 Broadman's area right there. And, and I, I would go on. I would go to the pupil and I would go to the iris and, and I would go to the cones. And I mean, I called all that stuff out. And I still do it. Here's what happened. 
when I first got glasses when I was 17. You guys remember a Coke bottle, looking at the bottom of a Coke bottle that was about this thick and how things kind of would look weird if you tried to look through it with no Coke in it? That's what my first glasses were like. And I mean, they were thick. They were huge. And the doctor told me, the eye doctor told me, said, well, you're going to have to wear this all your life. And he said, you're going to have failing. I said, I suspect you'll probably be blind by the time you're 35 or 40. And uh, I tell you, I'm almost 71, and I'm not blind. And every time I've gone to get my eyes checked from the, after I finally got that truth about how to come against it, every time I go, they have to give me less strong lens and less strong lens. I go about every year sometimes, two years, and they get, they say, well, we're going to have to change your lens again because they're getting better. They're getting better. So about five or six years ago, I said to the doc that I go to, I said, well, doc, what do you think that is? Is it natural for an old person like me for it to get better? And she said, oh, no, no. She goes, she's had, she'd been checking my eyes for a year, well, 30 years, I guess. And uh, she said, oh, no, 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 it, it doesn't happen like this. I said, would you like for me to tell you why it's happening? Well, yeah, I would be interested. Because, see, I was setting her up and she didn't even know it. And I said, well, here's why it's happening. So I went through telling her all of this. And she sat there, really? So it really worked when people say and do things? I said, oh, yeah, it works. I'm proof that it works. Here I'm sitting. You got my chart right there. And um, when I went last year, she said, you know, that's amazing. In all these years, I've never had a patient like this. I, I, I told her, I said, yeah, I know I'm special. <laughs> she got a big laugh out of that. I said, no, it's because Jesus is in process of healing my eyes because I've been declaring his word over them since I was about 21 years old. And I'll soon be 71. And I believe that he's healing my eyes. So you renounce it and speak truth over it. And then next... You rebuke it. Address the power behind it. Rebuke it. Renounce it. Now rebuke it. Any spirit that may be behind that, you rebuke it in the name of Jesus. It's got to go. And then the last R is replace it. Replace with what? The Word of God. The Word of God. Genetics may say this, but the Word of God says, by His stripes I'm healed. The Word of God says, by His stripes my eyes are healed, the nerves and every part of them. That's what the Word of God says. It's not complete yet. I still have to wear glasses. But you know what? I've discovered something. They're getting so good that sometimes I can see better without them than with them. And where I'm, when I'm doing any long-term reading, I don't use these anymore. I have some weak power readers that I used to read with when I'm going to be there for a while reading. And uh, because it, it gets kind of blurry with Esau. So what, why? Because God's healing it. Speak the word. Replace that belief with the word. Well, isn't that true that genetics? Yes, yes, and yes, it is. 
But it doesn't have to be absolutely true. You can change it. Speak the Word of God. And you know what? Renew your mind with the Word so you actually believe what you're speaking. Sometimes people say things and say they believe it, but in actuality they're not really believing it yet. Keep saying it until you believe it, that it is truth superior to all the conditions or symptoms you've got. Keep saying it. Keep saying it. Keep saying it. If it's Scripture, you can't say it too much. If it's Scripture, you can't say it too much. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. So, recognize, repent, renounce, rebuke, and replace. Five R's. Now, I want to pray. And I want us to do that. I want us to do those five things right there. You say, why I've been a Christian since I was nine years old. Wonderful. Great. But you probably still got some strongholds. There could be some. Have problems with anger? How about depression? What about discouragement? What about doubt? Are you addicted to something? Painkillers? I was in a group of senior Christians and uh, there was about, I don't know, a dozen there several years ago of which I happened to be the youngest. And uh, I was just listening to the conversation. And I bet for at least 20 to 30 minutes, all that was talked about was my prescriptions, my aches, my pains, my last time I went to my doctor. I mean, that was the whole conversation. I tried several times to change the conversation, and I couldn't because they were determined to complain about whatever's wrong with them. It was prescribed by a doctor. I know it. But you know, some of them still had strongholds in that area. I haven't got anything against prescriptions either. If you need it, use it. Ta-da. But if you don't use it, I mean, don't need it, don't use it. But my point is, their mind was so set in a particular path that they couldn't believe anything beyond that. Unless we get on their case, I've had that same mindset before. Not about that issue, but maybe about other issues. Strongholds. So identify the stronghold.